Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. I, I almost forgot the intro there. It's been so long since we've sat down to record an episode. My gosh. First off, apologies. It's been a while. It's been a minute. We haven't sat down and recorded a podcast in almost 10 days. And unfortunately, Mr. Daly isn't with me today. And that's simply because the two of us, Daly especially, have been incredibly busy with everything going on. And part of that is work, but also partly just because it's a festive time of year, which is a good time to acknowledge, or at least this is a great time to acknowledge that for all of you that are celebrating holidays or a holiday at this time of year, big shout out to you. We wish you all nothing but the best and really hope that you can find some time to savor and cherish some amazing moments with friends, family, and and coworkers that, you know, I think that for all of us, you know, and this is one of the reasons that I enjoy listening to podcasts so much is because they can be a great escape from all of the things that are happening out there in this big, scary world. And the last couple of years, I think, have been challenging for all of us, regardless of where we live, whether it was the pandemic or inflation or interest rates and some of these really horrendous things that are happening around the world. So I, I hope that everyone can take a few moments and, and at least appreciate what you have and appreciate some of the great things that are in your life and be able to spend some cherished moments with your friends and, and your family. And again, if you're tuning in because this show is your escape, I promise we're never going to go down the political line or anything like that. We can have those conversations offline and there's lots of places they get into the nitty gritty of the world that we live in. But this show is escapism in a lot of ways because we're here to talk about something fun and sometimes the topics aren't so fun, but at least they're adjacent to a topic that is really about entertainment and, and enjoyment and fun. And that, of course, is is Formula One. And while the 2023 championship wasn't great, I think there's a lot of reasons to be excited for the 2024 championship. And obviously, people talk about as the season concludes and we go into the winter break, it's really all about cleaning that slate and starting over. And we all know, because I think we're all intelligent enough, that it's not necessarily the case that we don't reset the regulations every single year. And 2024 is going to be a continuation of 23, which was a continuation of 22. And the teams that have been successful will continue to build on the concepts and the ideas that have made them successful the last couple of years. And the hope, of course, is the teams that haven't been successful are able to borrow some of those concepts or have some breakthroughs in the wind tunnel or on their computers where they're doing simulations and make up some of that ground. But again, we've seen surprises in this sport before, and we only need to go back 
back to 2009 and that incredible bronze championship amidst the global economic crisis, which was unquestionably one of the most special years in the history of the sport and Formula One and maybe just professional sports in general. And if you haven't seen, if you have Hulu and you're in the United States or you're in the UK or Canada or anywhere that has Disney Plus, of course, that phenomenal Keanu Reeves Braun GP documentary is available now. I think it's four or five episodes deep and they're about an hour long. Highly, highly recommend you checked out. If you have any time off during the holidays or over the New Year's, make sure you check that out because one, it's a brilliant documentary, but two, if you weren't watching F1 back then and you didn't get to enjoy that sensational season, it's totally, totally worth checking out. Now, if you are like me and you put off buying gifts until the very last moment, it's probably a little bit too late to put in an order for something from Tease and the entire team at Racing Exclusives. Probably too late to put in that order for Race Weekend. Actually, what am I saying? It's never too late. Put in the order anyways. And then, of course, it's probably a little bit too late to contact David Tires and get a piece of artwork ordered, although that might be a nice gift in the New Year's or for a birthday coming up. But if you are looking for a last-minute gift, make sure you check your local book reseller. There are a ton of phenomenal F1 books, and there's only more and more coming out. And that's one of the things that's been so special about this period of F1 boom is that there's so much content being created. Too many podcasts. Let me just say that we need to call at least 50% of all the F1 podcasts. There's too many of those. But in terms of documentaries and TV shows and books and magazines, we can never get enough. So if you're looking for that last minute gift, check out your local book reseller. There's a ton of really good stuff out there. And if you have somebody in your life that likes video games and maybe they already have a console, Electronic Arts slash Codemasters, F1 2023 is really good. And when... Electronic Arts bought Codemasters, who'd been the longtime licensee or license holder for the F1 video games a couple of years ago. I was super skeptical because I just thought they were going to pump it full of monetization efforts like loot boxes and microtransactions, and they were going to ruin it. And you know what? Fortunately, they haven't. It's actually still really, really good. And if you have a next generation console like a uh, I don't know, PlayStation 5 or Xbox Series S or Xbox Series X. It's an incredibly engaging experience. It can be a little bit technical because it's more of it's more of a sim than it is an arcade game. And I think that can be a turnoff at first. But if you're willing to invest a little bit of time in it, it becomes very addictive very, very quickly. And the next thing you know, you're upgrading to a steering wheel from Logitech and all of the fun accessories. And then who knows, maybe you end up building a sim cage and all that kind of stuff. But you can buy just you can start just by having the game and a console now you know what because it's just me we might as well just jump into the old meat and potatoes of the old show and I don't actually consume a lot of meat so I probably should update that to something else like rice and potatoes or salad and potatoes but a couple of really cool things that are going on right now the first and shout out to reddit user zant killer for putting this together but zant killer had this really cool post on reddit talking about a series of updates over at the FIA that are probably worth calling out and again I think we been really down on the FIA recently. Well, I think we've been down on a lot of things recently, but uh, he posts, and I, I'm going to quote here, an update to the FIA statues has moved the compliance officer, Paulo Basari, from under the direct authority of the FIA president to the direct authority of the FIA Senate and Senate 
uh, president, which is pretty interesting. Uh, A couple of other big updates and changes over the FIA. Uh, A change in the maximum age limits for the president of the FIA, the president of the Senate, and the deputy presidents for mobility and for sports, dropping from 75 to 70 at time of election. So that's pretty interesting. A change to the FIA Ethics Committee, which now has a commitment that it must include at least two members of each gender and members of different nationalities. That's pretty cool. A change whereby the International Tribunal and the International Court of Appeal will now both have elected presidents and vice presidents, the elected presidents of which will be, in addition, be pointed as the presidents and vice president of the Congress of the International Tribunal and International Court of Appeal, respectively. That's a mouthful. An expansion in the grounds and rules in regards to suspending FIA member clubs and associations. And then finally, a clarification in the framework for the transition of member clubs from to associate status to from full affiliation status. So a couple of interesting updates there from the world of the FIA. And of course, I think sometimes we think uh, a lot and maybe compartmentalize the FIA as being principally kind of the regulator of F1. But of course, they're involved in so many different global motorsports disciplines that I think we probably discredit the the work that they do and what they contribute to global motorsports. So a couple of quick updates there and shout out to that Reddit user for compiling that and putting that together. Uh, Another interesting little graph here from Racing News 365. And I don't know what to take from this, but it probably speaks to those countries that have been in a lot of ways the bastion of, of Formula One, at least in terms of grassroots engagement historically. And of course, I think that this chart in 50 years is going to look very, very different. But Racing News 365 had a pretty cool chart here, and it says most wins in Formula One by nation. I'm going to give you a second, and I want you to take a guess at who you think might be in the number one and the number two spots. If you you were to think about the drivers that have won the most championships, that would probably be the biggest clue. All right, you've had a minute. So number one in this list of F1 wins by nations is the United Kingdom with 308 Formula One Grand Prix. Germany, probably not a surprise. Of course, Michael Schumacher hails from Germany uh, and Lewis Hamilton hails from the United Kingdom. But Germany is number two on the list with 179 Grand Prix wins. There's then a fairly steep drop to Brazil at 101, but Brazil with 101 Formula One Grand Prix victories, followed by France at 81. Finland, tiny but mighty Finland with 57 Formula One Grand Prix victories. The Netherlands with 54, and I think we can attribute basically all of that uh, to Mr. Max Verstappen. And then surprisingly, Italy, number seven with 43 Grand Prix race victories. Australia with 43, Austria with 41, and Argentina with 38. And I think when I look at this list, one of the things that kind of catches my eye is Italy, that the, the country of Ferrari and the country of Mugello and Imola and Monza has amassed only 43 Grand Prix race victories, despite just how deep motorsports heritage is in that country and how much motorsports culture is imprinted on the DNA of, of everyone in that nation. It's it's pretty fascinating. Now, over on the MotoGP side, of course, they've had wild success with some of their riders, including Valentino Rossi, but there's never been a Valentino Rossi equivalent in, in the world of Formula One, despite the fact that there's so much tremendous world-class racing infrastructure in that country. And amazing considering how much grassroots participation there is 
in that country. You know, I've, I've had this conversation with people before, and they talk about the fact that if you look at Spain, which is where there's massive engagement with MotoGP, people get involved with motorcycle racing at a very young age, three, four, five, six years. And it's the same in Italy, simply because the cost of participating in that sport is dramatically lower. So people will consume and they'll watch four wheel racing. But when it comes to getting their kids involved in the sport in some of these countries, it's just so much more cost effective to get them involved in the sport on two wheels instead of four wheels. But pretty cool. Again, UK, Germany, Brazil, France, Finland, Netherlands, Italy, Australia, Austria, and Argentina. And you know, a couple of years ago, I remember we had a guest on who is an FIA credentialed reporter from Australia. And I was talking to him about the fact that Australia, relative to some of these countries, isn't necessarily huge population-wise, and it's fairly remote. I think there's fewer than 30 million people in that country, although I think the population is growing pretty rapidly. But that is another country that is just motorsports obsessed, whether it's V8 supercars or MotoGP or Formula One. And they just seem to have, they seem to have successes in every single global motorsports discipline. So that's, uh, that's pretty, pretty cool. Now, moving on to something a little bit more newsworthy, Honda Racing Global tweeted out a tweet a couple of days ago, and it says the following, to prepare For Honda's new F1 participation with Aston Martin F1 from 2026, HRC will start recruiting F1 power unit engineers, technicians, and staff members in the UK from spring 2024. More details will be posted as we start recruitment. And on the one hand, this is super exciting. And just as an FYI, HRC stands for Honda Racing Corporation, who've always been intimately involved with Honda's participation in MotoGP and and bike racing. But recently, there were some consolidation efforts at Honda prior to their announcement that they were going to participate in F1 from 2026 forward. But they basically consolidated all of their motorsports efforts under a single banner, under HRC. So you'll probably hear HRC a lot more going forward. But there's a couple of interesting things here. One is just anytime they acknowledge that they're coming back is amazing because I remember sitting here with Daily three years ago and we're bemoaning the fact that they're exiting the sport and then they were kind of providing a white label engine to to Red Bull who won a championship and then they were back on the car. But in the meantime, Red Bull had kind of created their own power unit division and they were going to partner with Ford and it was all very weird. But very exciting they're coming back. It's very interesting that that partnership's going to be with another OEM in in Aston Martin. We've talked about this so many times before that it just it seems logical that if Aston Martin's going to partner and procure a power unit from a different manufacturer on the grid, like it just makes sense that it would be Mercedes. And the reason I say that is because the road cars borrow so much technology from Mercedes, whether it's switchgear, drivetrains, gearboxes. They borrow a ton of the internal componentry from their German kind of brethren or their German competitors. So it kind of made sense that, hey, the F1 team would do the same thing. Like, hey, build your chassis, put your car together, but kind of buy a Mercedes power unit gearbox or rear suspension, if you will. So it's kind of interesting that they've decided that Aston Martin, the Formula One team have decided to 
diverge from that strategy and go all in with Honda because it doesn't reflect what their road car is doing. And of course, they are not obligated to cowtail to the needs and wants of the road car division. I think in a lot of ways, it might actually be the other way around when you kind of look at their organizational structure. And I don't think the Aston Martin road car division is necessarily, uh, I don't know how to say this. I don't think that they want their the long-term successes of their road car division to necessarily be tied to this relationship with Mercedes either. But all that to say, it's super interesting that Aston Martin as a Formula One team are deciding to go with Honda. One, because it's two separate distinct road car companies that are kind of partnering here that Aston Martin road car division Honda road car division. Now, all of that said, there's virtually no overlap between what the two of them do. Aston Martin is not producing a Civic competitor, obviously, and Honda has never produced a DB12 competitor, so there's no real overlap there. But it is pretty interesting, and I guess I guess when you think about it from Aston Martin's perspective, and we've preached this so many times, that in an ideal world, you want to be a works team, that you want to be able to develop that chassis and your suspension and your gearbox in tandem with your power unit and this is going to give them that ability from mercedes's perspective i think mercedes is content having just a couple of customer teams on the grid it still gives them a ton of data and it gives them some income to offset the cost of participating in the sport but i think for aston martin it's all about having that true works partnership and the fact that they're going to be able to build that car and that power unit in tandem now a couple of other takeaways from this tweet and this is pretty interesting and i'm going to quote hrc will start recruiting f1 power you had engineers, technicians, and staff members in the UK from spring 24. So this is interesting because my assumption this entire time was that that 2026 power unit was going to be supplied from Tokyo, which is where Red Bull and Alpha Tower are getting their units today, that they're using existing infrastructure, they're using existing facilities in Tokyo, they're building those power units, they're sticking them on a crate, and then they're shipping via air freight over to Milton Keynes. And I think my assumption was always that that was going to be what was going to happen with Aston Martin. But it sounds like, especially if they're inferring that they're going to start hiring staff in the UK that maybe that just maybe the development of that power unit, although maybe not the construction, but maybe the development of that power unit is actually going to happen closer to the Silverstone base. And then when you start thinking about it and unpacking that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that if we're going to partner with Honda and we're going to be the team that they provide exclusively, in essence, making us a works team, why would we not want to work with as little geography between the two of us as possible. So that makes sense. So it'll be super interesting to see what their plans are. Are they going to build a new campus in Silverstone? Are they going to stand up a new factory somewhere in the UK to produce this power unit for the test bench to start constructing it and assembling it? That's going to be super cool to know because obviously they're interested and invested and announcing that they're going to be actively hiring people. It is interesting that they're not going to start till 2024, especially when they say spring 2024, because you think at that point, man, you got two years to kind of get this thing together. And Daly and I have commented in the past about the fact that the the delay that, and I shouldn't say delay because I think we should be just fortunate and thankful that Honda's going to participate at all, but they're seemingly slow, slow decision around coming back for 2026 presumably ha has cost them 
some degree of competitive advantage because these other teams, Red Bull, we know that they're deep in development with their power unit with Ford. And we know Mercedes presumably is deep and Ferrari is deep and Alpine is deep. That Honda, in a sense, is saying, hey, we actually haven't started. And, you know, if you're interested in coming and helping us, you know, submit your resume. So that's kind of interesting. And then I read a comment earlier as well about the fact that, and this was on Reddit, but somebody had made a really astute observation that if they're looking to recruit personnel from another F1 team, which is generally what happens, right? Because you want to hire somebody that has some degree of subject matter expertise and has some experience in the field. You typically recruit from a different team, a different facility that in doing so, a lot of these people will have contracts that will possibly prohibit them from joining right away. And they may need to put some distance between their prior employer and their new employer. So all of that to say, one, it's exciting that they're hiring up, that they're going to have a UK base, presumably, but also it's just a little bit concerning that it's going to take them a while, that they're really not even going to start putting rocks in place until 2024. Now, who knows what's happening in Tokyo? They may have a 2026 single cylinder spec engine on the test bench already. We don't know, uh, but I think the assumption has to be that, hey, they probably weren't actively working on it until they officially announced their return to the sport. Oh, now the next story is one that is near and dear to my heart. And for those of you that are sick and tired of hearing me rant about Alpha Terry falling under the corporate umbrella of Red Bull, I'm sorry, this is a story I got to talk about. And to kind of back this up a little bit, I have been saying for years that the reason that the other teams on the Formula One grid, the reason that they haven't been more vocal in their opposition to the sheer presence of Toro Rosso slash Alpha Tauri is because the team's never been competitive in any kind of meaningful way that why are we going to be up in arms about a team that we know we're never actually competing with and of course there's a whole bunch of tactical reasons why you could argue that hey it's still very beneficial for Red Bull and super unbeneficial to you but I think that from a team perspective a competitor perspective they simply look at this through the lens of dollars and cents right which is you know what as a Formula One team I'm going out there to accumulate constructors points because I want to win prize money and if there's a team on the grid that's never going to be set up to be successful and compete with me I'm not going to complain about that that's like complaining about Haas not being competitive enough like hey Haas isn't taking points off me. Like, let them do their thing. Like, if I'm Mercedes, I'm quite content for Haas to be an absolutely horrendously run and dysfunctional organization. And I think likewise, if you're Mercedes and Alpine and Ferrari, you know what? You're probably pretty content that Alpha Tauri is a, a team that you don't even consider when it comes to strategy and competition. Now, there's certainly been some moments in the last couple of years where you look at something that an Alpha Tauri driver has done to the benefit of a Red Bull driver that you know a driver for another team wouldn't have done. And I know that kind of from a regulation perspective, Christian Horner can't be giving team orders to Alpha Tauri during the race on the radio or via any other means of electronic communication. But that's not to say he hasn't been sitting down with Franz Tost on the plane or at a party or at a restaurant or at a cafe off the track and very clearly strategizing how Alpha Tauri should do things that benefit the Red Bull 
drivers. And that that's a problem. But again, all of this to say, I think teams have historically looked at this purely through the lens of dollars and cents and that they're quite happy to have a team on the grid that they're not competing with. And now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Red Bull has been very clear that, hey, we did an analysis of our business unit that is Alpha Tauri. And we heard Helmut Marco talk earlier this year about, hey, we talked about selling it. We talked about doing this. We talked about moving it in its entirety to the UK. And ultimately, I think the decision was to reorg, restructure, bring it closer to the UK, but bring the development of the car as close to the Red Bull, the RB19, the RB20, as is allowed under the regulations. And now finally, finally, for the first time, we're starting to hear some opposition from other team principals on the grid. And Matt Q over at autosport.com had a really great article and he quotes Zach Brown, of course, the McLaren racing CEO as saying he has quote unquote, big concerns regarding the alliance between sister formula one teams, Red Bull and alpha Tauri. And I'm going to quote this article here. He says, as the 2023 campaign drew to a close, Alpha Tauri brought a string of aggressive upgrades to climb from last to eighth in the Constructors' Championship. Meanwhile, Red Bull did not meaningfully update its car from August, with the upgrades giving Alpha Tauri major gains in low-speed corners and area of weakness for Red Bull. Rivals considered how high the junior team might climb and whether any sharing of resource might also help Red Bull eke out its restricted wind tunnel testing allowance. While Red Bull F1 boss Christian Horner has rubbished the suggestion that any rules are being broken, and for the record, I don't think any rules are being broken, and the FIA has completed compliance checks, Brown says he still has big concerns over the alliance. And Matt Q has a really great article here. He says, the million-dollar question, and this is Zach Brown speaking, but the million-dollar question that none of us know is how early did they, Red Bull, turn off this year's car we know we've outperformed the others in the development race, and we know we've closed the gap to Red Bull, but what none of us know is, did Red Bull stop and we just caught up, or were they still developing? Also, we have some big concerns over the alliance between Alpha Tauri and Red Bull. I think that is something that needs to be addressed in the future, so I still think the sport has a way to go to make sure that everyone is truly in Dependent. And Matt Q continues here. He says teams may form technical alliances, currently the most notable in the working relationship between Haas and Ferrari, to buy specified components, including hydraulics, gearbox, and suspension. Finally, he writes fears that Red Bull and Alpha Tauri have overstepped have been fueled by Alpha Tauri moving personnel from Italy to the UK as it seeks to save money by consolidating around its aerodynamics facility in Bister, which is probably a half hour from Silverstone and about an hour 15 from Milton Keynes, which of course is where the factory is. He actually continues, and I, I didn't see this, but he continues, uh, Zach Brown continues, it is two teams with common ownership, which you wouldn't have in other sports. 100% true. It could benefit Red Bull in a lot of different ways. There's a reason why they are moving a lot of other people from Italy. As Helmut Marco has said, they are going to do absolutely everything they can to benefit from having two teams. I get that's because that's what the rules say, but I think we need to look at the governance of the sports around technical alliances. And one, I'm I'm just, I'm so thrilled that somebody within the sport is finally acknowledging and addressing something that I think we've been saying for a very long time. And I think it's also something that people that are new to the sport that have only been following Formula One for the last couple of years, I think they pick up on it very quickly and they're very sensitive to it. And I think people that have watched the sport for a long time are probably more desensitized because we've seen this in the past. And we've seen instances in the past where teams are falling off the grid like crazy because of financial difficulties. And there's desperate bids to keep teams on the grid at all. And maybe, maybe now for the first time in the history of Formula One, there's no desperate need to keep a team 
from leaving the grid that if an existing owner wanted out of the sport, there's a ton of businesses and organizations and corporations around the planet that would love to get involved. So again, I think it's amazing that Zach Brown is acknowledging that this is a problem. He's looking at it through the lens of, hey, one, as a technical alliance, it's problematic. And two, he's also acknowledging that from an ownership perspective, it's it's a challenge and a problem. And from my perspective, one, this, this has to be undone. And I just, I don't know. I don't know if this is a Concord agreement issue. I don't know if this is a financial regulation issue, a sporting regulation issue, a technical regulation issue. I don't know if this is something that needs to be addressed through FOM and its relationship with the teams. I don't know if this is a commercial issue. I don't know if this is an FIA issue. I just, I don't know where you would start by forcing the sale of the Alpha Tauri team, but I think this is a really great start that somebody, especially somebody high profile like Zach Brown, is acknowledging openly that this isn't cool. And hopefully we hear more of this from other people on the grid, and then maybe it becomes mainstream common discourse and the FIA or the FOM or both of them are ultimately are ultimately forced to address this issue. And the FIA talks so much about sporting integrity and, and competitive balance. And, and so does so does FOM, right? Because they were the backbone of getting the current kind of cost cap into place. But there's just this glaring, there's this glaring contradiction that is the fact that in a 10-team sport, you have two teams with the same owner. And again, I don't think there's cheating happening here that I'm sure, I'm sure that by the rule of the law and as far as the sporting and technical regulations go that look, you know what? Red Bull are supplying parts that they can lawfully supply to another team and they could supply them to any other team and that Alpha Tower is going to buy them. I think the bigger concern here is one, the unsporting like behavior that could happen on the track in some very obvious ways, which is maybe an Alpha Tauri stepping out of the way for a Red Bull driver in a way that maybe a driver from Alpine or Haas wouldn't do. And I think that's a problem. And I also think those Alpha Tauri drivers, whether they're told or not, very much know that their role ultimately on the track is to to support their cousin cars in, in the Red Bulls. And I think there's some other issues here. And, you know, I was going down this deep dive on Reddit earlier today. And there were some really interesting things there that I didn't, I hadn't kind of thought about before, which is, you know, if you're Red Bull and you have a concept and you're a championship team, your car might be great, but you're also at a disadvantage from the other teams because you get less wind tunnel time, which means you have less time to accumulate data to inform your decisions about the aerodynamic direction of your car. But what's to stop, what's to stop you from procuring data from Alpha Tauri? That is just, they may say it's not happening and the FIA might say they don't see this, but there's nothing to stop that from happening and for this to be an open lingering question. And then another comment I'd seen that kind of struck me as, wow, like, why didn't I think about this? But if you flash back a couple of years, we had both the Alpha Tauri and the Red Bull running Renault power units. And of course, that relationship had run its course, probably had run its course four or five years earlier. But Red Bull had announced that they were going to integrate Honda power units into their cars. But they moved the Alpha Tauri over to Honda a year before they moved the Red Bull. 
And at the time, I thought that was pretty interesting. And, and I assume that obviously, hey, you know what? You want to iron out the kinks in the Alpha Tauri before you move it over to the Red Bull. But that's as far as I'd kind of thought. And then I'd read this comment that, yes, that's exactly what they were doing. They had this massive benefit and this advantage of having a second team on the grid and they could basically use it as a dummy mule for an entire championship calendar. You know what? Get that Honda power unit in it before the engine freeze. Do a ton of work and a ton of experimentation and basically write off the Alpha Tauri Toro Rosso championship season because that gives you that gives you a massively improved Honda power unit to go into the Red Bull the subsequent year. And it's just like, Man, I didn't even think about that. That on the, the one hand, it's logical that, hey, you know what? Like iron out the kinks in the Alpha Tauri, but iron out the kinks in the Alpha Tauri. Like, what are we talking about here? This is a benefit that no other team in the championship has. So on that note, I'll conclude there. But I just, I hope we end up in a world where this cannot continue to be a thing. That a single company owns two teams because it just, it throws everything about competitive balance and sporting integrity out the window that FOM FIA can't they they have they have no they have no moral ground to stand on when they preach either of those things so long as one company can own two teams now again the enabler for all of this has been the other teams that they've never complained loudly enough, at least publicly, or really even behind closed doors because we've never heard this reported before. They've enabled this to happen. And maybe, maybe now that Alpha Tauri appears to be a challenger, at least when it comes to accumulating championship points, maybe now the tide will turn and we'll see a, we'll see a different tone from the rest of the team principals. We have an article from Sky News, and Mark Kleinman over at Sky News writes that Bahrain gains full control of McLaren Group in deal with minority investors. The Gulf State Sovereign Wealth Fund will effectively, and I'm quoting here, effectively become McLaren's sole owner as part of a deal that could be announced as soon as this week. And he continues, Bahrain's Sovereign Wealth Fund is gaining full ownership of McLaren Group, one of the most revered names in British premium manufacturing as part of a long-term plans to secure a partnership with a global industry giant. Sky News has learned that the Gulf States Investment Fund is on the brink of a deal with McLaren's remaining minority shareholders to convert their equity into warrant-like instruments. The new contracts will have the economic rights to benefit from a future liquidity event such as an initial public offering of McLaren but would not be classed as shares. One banking source said they expected the agreement could be announced later this week. It would involve roughly 20% of the equity in McLaren being converted into the new contracts and leave the state of Bahrain as the Formula One team owning group's sole shareholder. McLaren Racing, the division which directly houses the F1 and other racing operations, does have its own external shareholders following a deal struck during the pandemic to raise capital. The deal to be signed this week underlines the continued confidence and leadership in the Sovereign Wealth Fund in driving McLaren's turnaround, according to one insider. The Woking-based company's convoluted capital structure has acted as a deterrent to global automotive group's ability to structure a long-term partnership with it in recent years. Simplifying that structure is likely to pave the way for a technology partnership with an automotive original equipment manufacturer OEM in the coming years as McLaren transitions towards becoming a hybrid and electric vehicle 
company. Bankers have talked up the prospect of a McLaren public listing for years, but its repeated need to tap its private shareholders for funding and the supply chain challenges which have hindered its recovery mean that an IPO is still likely to be several years away. And then finally, he writes, earlier this year, the Sovereign Wealth Fund acquired the McLaren shareholdings of Saudi Arabia Sovereign Wealth Funds and Eras Management, a major U.S.-based financial investor. And more recently, the Bahrain-based fund was reported to have injected another 80 million pounds into the company, which makes the Artura super car. So some interesting things here, and I have tried to go down the rabbit hole of understanding the financial structure of the McLaren Group and McLaren Racing, and I simply do not understand how it is structured. It is very, very, very complex, but I think the the biggest takeaway here is that the McLaren Group, and this is a British holding company that basically functions as an umbrella over a number of divisions, including the McLaren Automotive Road Car Division, so the group that builds the McLaren Road Cars, uh, McLaren Racing, the group that is responsible for the F1 team, uh, McLaren Applied Sciences, which is another group that does a ton of engineering work and, and applied physics and things like that, that ultimately McLaren Group is getting a massive cash injection from the Bahraini Sovereign Wealth Fund. And in the event that the company ever does trigger an IPO, I think they stand in a very strong position to take almost total control over the organization. And all of this ultimately is good because I think in the last six or seven years, we've seen a tremendous amount of instability at the Woking-based team. And if nothing else, this is going to inject much-needed capital that will enable them to continue to build and develop their car and their racing brand. Um, but there's something else that I thought was pretty interesting in this article. It speaks to the fact that this restructuring and this capital injection would make McLaren racing more I'm trying to think about the right word here. I mean, ultimately, I could just quote it. But ultimately, it says it makes McLaren Racing, the Formula One team, more attractive for partnership with an OEM. And when we talk about an OEM, we mean a road car manufacturer that presumably would be interested in supplying and partnering on a power unit that McLaren today simply doesn't have the capital and they don't have the expertise to develop a Formula One power unit. That's why they are a Mercedes customer team and it's why they currently renewed that deal and they'll be a Mercedes customer team through 2030. But interestingly, what this article said is that the stability that's going to be provided through this cash injection and this new investment will make the team more attractive for partnership with an OEM. I don't know who that would be. I don't know when that would be. It does imply that it'll be at least a couple of years away and ultimately I don't think the team's in any rush because they just inked that new deal with McLaren but it's good that this team that is such an establishment both in terms of global motorsports and British racing and of course within Formula One it's good that they're getting some much needed stability because it seems like it was just a couple of years ago that the MTC, the McLaren Technology Center, one of the most fabulous bases in pieces of motorsports infrastructure in the world, they had to sell it in a leaseback arrangement because they needed the injection of capital that they have this phenomenal facility, this massive, massive campus in Woking, and they had to sell it in a leaseback arrangement because they needed the cash. So they sell it off, they get this injection of cash, but then they immediately enter into this really onerous long-term lease. So who knows? Maybe maybe there's an opportunity for them to bring that back in-house as well, but a pretty cool story nonetheless.
Now, as it is the middle of December, the FIA has officially published the list of entrants into the 2024 FIA Formula One World Championship. And guess what? There's no surprises. But there are a couple of interesting takeaways here. So we know Alpine's coming back, Aston Martin, Ferrari, Haas, McLaren, Mercedes, Oracle, Red Bull Racing, and Williams, they're all coming back. But the thing that we were all very interested in seeing when this list was published was really two things. One, we were very, very curious to see what Alfa Romeo Sauber was going to be called because we know the Alfa Romeo partnership is over and this team is going to have to adopt something of a temporary name for the next couple of years. So we were all kind of eager to see what it was. And we were also very curious to see what Scuderia Alfa Tauri Red Bull was going to be called coming into the 2023 season or 2024 season. Now, unfortunately, we didn't learn a lot. So the first thing that we discovered was that Alfa Romeo is officially listed as Stake F1 Team Kick Sauber. So the Sauber brand comes back. It's going to be on the car. But Stake, which I guess is their gambling partner, F1 Team Kick Sauber. It's a mouthful. And I think a lot of people were a little bit disappointed, thinking that they might do something a little bit more exciting. Now, what's interesting about this is on the heels of all of this negative press that, that I, what am I going to call them? Stake? Kick? Sauber? I'm just going to call them Sauber. On the, on the heels of all the negative press and all of the negative comments that were all over social media about this new, very convoluted, very complex name was an announcement from Sauber themselves. They actually went on social media to address the concerns about their 2024-2025 team name. And they said the following... It seems our recently released team name has been getting a lot of attention. While we're not ready to unveil the final result yet, we are aware of what's at stake. Rest assured, we're on a mission to unleash the most exciting team identity this team has ever seen. Gone are the days of the short and sweet. We're cooking up a feast. So just because, just because this is the name they submitted for the 2024 championship doesn't mean it's the name, presumably, that they're going to stick with. So that's very, very interesting. And if this was all a big social media play, well done. Well done to the entire social media team at Sauber. I'm very, very curious as to what it's going to be. So again, that comment, gone are the days of the short and sweet. We're cooking up a feast. Well, I mean, your current name, this is a temporary name, Stake F1 Team Kick Sauber. It's certainly not short, but it'll be super exciting to see what they come up with. Now, the other one, and I mentioned this a couple of minutes ago, was Alpha Tauri. That we all know Alpha Tauri is getting a rebrand. We all know that they're going to move closer to the UK base. We all know that there's going to be a lot more part sharing. And we all know that Daniel Ricciardo will probably transition out of this team to Red Bull at some point during the 2024 championship. What we don't know still is what the team is going to be called. So we've been reporting, and again, by reporting, I mean aggregating other people's news, but we'd spoken about the fact that the branding will probably be very similar to Red Bull. And there was a lot of speculation because I think people were pulling copyright um, letters and copyright submissions and documents and legal things that the team was going to be called Racing Bulls. And if that is, in fact, what it's going to be called, Alpha Tauri slash Red Bull are not yet ready to reveal that. So as far as the 2024 FIA entries list is considered, the team is still Scuderia Alpha Tauri RB. So we don't yet know what the team is going to be called. We do know, 
we do know that Scuderia Ferrari is the first team to announce the unveil of its 2024 competitor, and that's going to happen in February. In fact, that's going to happen on Tuesday, February 13th, and I think we're probably going to get a ton of announcements from the other team. The one other comment on Ferrari that I should mention real quickly before we move on to another story is that team principal Frederick Vasseur says, and I quote, and it will be revolution is your word. We are changing 95% of the components in the car. Perhaps you can consider that as a revolution. I don't know if it will be. Now, the expectation, the expectation is that we are focused on ourselves. We are doing a good step forward, but in the end, it's always a matter of comparison. You can improve by 100. If the others are improving by 120, you will look stupid. If they're improving by 80, you will look like a mega hero. But the takeaway there is the fact that for the first time, Ferrari is openly acknowledging just how much of the parts in that car are going to be turned over. And maybe 95%, it might seem super dramatic, but in the grand scheme of things, that might not be totally uncommon for an F1 team, but at least it speaks to the fact that they're continuing to innovate and develop. And I think we should be horrified if they weren't turning over almost every component in that car. And of course, I think when they talk about 95%, maybe the remaining 5% would be the power unit. But of course, the power unit's in a freeze, so you can't really be evolving and updating and modifying that anyways. Now, the last story of the night comes from Alpine. And over at Alpine, team principal Bruno Famine says that Renault is still willing to supply power units to Andretti if the American outfit gets an entry. And of course, if you recall, there had been a contract between the two of them that if Andretti was to get a spot on the grid, that they would be supplied power units from Renault. And of course, Renault doesn't have a customer team today. So that's good news for them. They get they get an injection of cash because they're going to be selling power units on to another team. They're going to be able to accumulate some data. Although given that we're in an engine freeze, there's not much you can do with it. But it was good news for them. It was also good news for Andretti because one of the biggest challenges that you have when you start building a Formula One car is you need to know who's going to supply your power unit so you can start building the car around it. Now, the interesting thing about the Andretti bid to get on the grid is they have a partnership with GM and they're going to use the Cadillac brand, of course. And the question that a lot of people had was, well, if you're going to be buying Renault power units, what is GM's involvement in this project? Are you simply going to rebrand? Are you going to buy those Renault power units white label and rebrand them as GM? Because that's not that cool. Is GM going to provide technical expertise in other ways? Well, that answer or that question was answered not too long ago when it was announced that GM is committed, in fact, to building their own power unit for Andretti if Andretti gets on the grid and they hope to do that as soon as 2027 or 2028. Although naturally, they're probably quite reluctant to put any serious money or capital into that project unless they have a guarantee that it's going to go into a car. But it looks now more certain than ever that Renault's supply of a power unit to Andretti would simply be a stopgap measure to enable them to power those cars for the first couple of years on the grid. So if Andretti, for instance, was on the grid for 25, which is seemingly 
less likely, although possible. I, I just, I guess it really comes down to how successful the, those conversations between FOM and Andretti are. And there's been radio silence there, which maybe isn't a bad thing because maybe those conversations have been fruitful. But if Andretti was to get on the grid for 25, it means that he would be rocking or that team would be rocking a Renault power unit for 25, 26. And it probably would be a rebranding exercise. And they would continue to purchase and utilize those power units until such time that GM had their own power unit ready to go to supply that car. So if Andretti was on the grid for 25, they would use the current spec, which of course is part of the current freeze. And then in 26, they would get that entirely new and overhauled power unit. And I, I've been saying for a while that as much as I'd love to see a qualified team on the grid, whether it's Andretti or somebody else, doesn't really make a lot of sense to build and develop a car for 25 when you've got to scrap that and start over for 26, that really you're better off just planning and building for 2026. But we'll see. And, and maybe this doesn't happen and that maybe in the spring FOM announces that they're not interested in in commercial partnership with Andretti and this all goes to court and that becomes kind of the main narrative at the beginning of the championship and hopefully it doesn't come to that but it is interesting that Renault is still very much open to supplying power units now it's also very nice of Bruno to say hey we would be open to supplying power units because based under based on the current regulations they are also obligated to supply another team that a team that manufactures a power unit is in fact obligated to supply at least one other team if requested and if Andretti was to request a supply of power units they would be obligated to satisfy that request Okay, you know, we've got a couple of other stories here, but I think we will save those for next week when Mr. Daly and I get back together. Uh, but to hint, to hint at a couple of these stories, one, Horner admits everything is open for 2025 Red Bull lineup with Ricardo back in the fold. Stefano Domenicali ups pressure on Monza for significant track improvements after contract extension. Frederick Vasseur says a successful driver, an American successful driver, over Andretti is the key to U.S. growth. And the Singapore Formula One Grand Prix was in fact hailed as the best race of 2023 by international media. Although I think recency bias might suggest that people would think it was actually in fact Las Vegas. Although of course Singapore was the one race that wasn't won by a Red Bull driver. All that to say, guys, we'll be back next week. I know that this was a bit of a compressed show. It seemed a little bit scrambly, but honestly, if you were just looking for a little bit of escapism from everything that's going on in this helter-skelter world, I, I hope you enjoyed this. Obviously, Daly and I have big plans for next year. We've got most of the year mapped out. Uh, we have a couple of cool episodes coming up. We're finally going to drop, hopefully, MotoGP 101 if we're able to finally recover those files. We've been promising that for my gosh, it feels like we've been promising that for six or seven months. Micah Boyce and myself are going to do an episode on F1 fashion, which should be a lot of fun. Obviously, we're going to have Sam Cooper on a couple of times during the offseason to get us ready for the car reveals. My goodness, you know, I think the rest of this month is going to go by super, super quick. And the next thing you know, we're going to be into car reveals, winter testing, and the championship will start all over again. Of course, next year's championship is going to be, oh, it's going to be a long one. Uh, of course, China's coming back onto the calendar. 
It's going to be a pretty hectic year. Again, for everybody at home, if you have the opportunity to spend time with loved ones over the next couple of days and weeks, I hope you take the opportunity to have some amazing moments and to build some amazing memories. Big shout out to everybody that listens to this podcast. If you do like what we do, please give us a rating and review on Spotify and Apple. And uh, for now, we'll let you go. We'll talk to you all soon. Bye for now. I feel like a locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona. Mixtape just around the corner. Did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song, and my songs gon' break through like a running back.